0: 48. Covent Garden, and played peer, somehow or other for one must not be too particular about the wherefores of stage political intrigues Felicia is promoted from the office of making dresses for the Queen to that of putting them on, behold her a maid of honour and of all work, for the Queen takes her into her confidence, and in that case people at court have an immense variety of duties to perform, the Duchess's place is fast becoming a sinecure, and she trembles for her influence perhaps, in case of dismissal for her next quarter's salary to boot so she shakes in her shoes, it is at this stage of the plot that we perceive why the part of Henrica was entrusted to the gentleman who plays it, the mystery we had alluded to being by this arrangement very considerably increased, for we now learn that no fewer than three ladies in the piece are in love with him, namely, Felicia, the queen, and the duchess, now the most penetrating auditor would never, until actually informed of the fact, for a moment suspect a queen, or even a duchess, of such bad taste, for, as far as our experience goes, we have generally found that women do not cast their affections to men who are sheepish, insensible, cold, and vainly, with small voices, and not more than five feet high. Surprise artfully excited and cleverly satisfied is the grand aim of the dramatist. How completely is it here fulfilled, for when we discover that the personator of Henrico is meant for an Adonis, we are astonished, the truth is then, that the secret benefactor of this supposed to be irresistible youth has always been the Duchess Elbethuras, who, learning from Olivaras that her pet has new claims upon her heart for having killed her friend the Duke, determines to assist him to escape, which however is not at all necessary, for Olivaras is entrusted with the warrant for apprehending the person or persons unknown who did the murder, but could he injure the man who has made him a Duke by a lucky coup de pay? Remember no. Let him cross the frontier, and, when he is out of reach, what thundering denunciations will not the possessor of the dukedom fulminate against the killer of his cousin? It is shocking to perceive how intimately acquainted old scribe must be with manners, customs, and feelings, as they exist at court. The necessary passports are placed before the queen for her signature perhaps her Spanish majesty can't afford clerks, but when she perceives whom they threaten to banish from behind her chair. She declines honoring them with her autograph. The Duchess thus learns her secret. She, too, love Henrico? Well I never. About this time a tornado of jealousy may be expected, but court etiquette prevents it from bursting, and the Duchess reserves her revenge. The Queen sits down to her embroidery frame, and one is puzzled to know what is coming next. This puzzle was not on Monday night long in being resolved. Oliva entered. And a child in the gallery commenced crying with that persevering quality of tone which threatens long endurance. Mr. Yates could not resist the temptation, and Olivares, the newly created Duke of Medina, promised the baby a free admission for four, any other night, if it would only vacate the gallery just then. These terms having been assent to by a final screech, the infant left the gallery, after an instant's pause during which the manager tapped his forehead, as much as to say, where did I leave off? The piece went on. We had no idea till last night how difficult it was for a queen to indulge in a bit of flirtation, a most elaborate intrigue island it seems, necessary to procure for her a tender interview with her inamorato. A plan was invented, whose intricacy would have bothered the inventor of skinning jennies, whereby Henrica was to be closeted with her most Christian majesty. Its grand accomplishment to take place when the queen called for a glass of ice the original scribe wrote, water but the Adelphi adapter thought ice would be more natural, for fear the piece should run till Christmas. The Duchess overhears the entire plot, but fails in frustrating it. Hence we find Henrico, Felicia, and the Queen together, going through a well-contrived and charmingly conducted scene of equivocate. The Queen questioning Henrico touching the state of his heart, and the answering her in reference to Felicia, who was leaning over the embroidery frame behind the Queen, and out of her sight, this felicitous situation is interrupted by the spiteful Duchess. The lover escapes behind the window curtains to avoid scandal. is discovered, and his sovereign's reputation is only saved by the declaration of Felicia that the captain is there on her account. Olivarez asserts that they are married. To clinch the fit, the Queen sees her folly. The Duchess is disgraced. All the characters stand in the well-defined semicircle, which is the stage method of writing the word "finish." Mrs. Yates speaks a very neat and want tag, and that's all. For this to act comedy, dear Yates, we pronounce absolution and remission of thy sins, so wickedly committed in the washy melodrama, and cackling vaudeville, thou hast recently affront common sense with all, thy own acting as the courtier was natural, except when thou didst interpolate the dialogue with the baby at crying sin, believe us, else, thy bows were graceful, and thy shoulder shrugs are they not chronicled in the mind's I of thy most distant admirers, the little touches of humor that shone forth in the dialogue assigned to thee, were not exaggerated by the too oft indulged in grimaces in short, despite thy two monstrous chapeau bras which was big enough for a lifeboat thou lookedst like a duke, a gentleman, and what in truth thou really art an indefatigable intriguan, thy favorite helpmate, too, gave a reality to the scene by her captivating union of queenly dignity and feminine tenderness, but most especially fortunate art thou in my Felicia, Alas for our hunch and our hatchet nose, but oh alas, and alas, that we had a Judy! For never did we regret all three so deeply as while Miss Ellen Chaplin was on the stage, in our favorite scene with the Queen and her lover. How graceful and expressive were her dumb answers to what ought to have been Henrico's eloquent declarations, spoken through the Queen. We charge thee, dear friend, to call her on Monday morning at 11 and to rehearse unto her what we are going to say, tell her that as she is young, a bright career is before her if she will not fall into the sin of copying some other favorite actress say, for instance, Mrs. Yates instead of our arch mistress nature, say, moreover, that at the same time, she must be unwearying in acquiring art, lastly, inform her, that punch has his eye upon her, and will scold her if she become a backslider and an imitator of other people's faults, as to poor Mr. Spencer Ford, he, too, is young, and you do wrong, oh Yates, in giving him a part he will be unequal to till he grows big enough for a coat, a smaller part would, we doubt not, suit him excellently, lastly, give our best compliments to Mrs. Fosbroke, to the illustrious Mr. Freeborn, to Mr. John Saunders, and our special commendations to thy scene painter, thy upholsterer, and the gentleman lamplighter thou art so justly proud of, for each did his and her best to add a charm to, the maid of honour, punch, OR the London C H A R I V A R I. volume 1, for the week ending November sixth, eighteen 1841, a daydream at my uncle's, the result of a serious conversation between the authors of my being ended in the resolution that it was high time for me to begin the world, and do something for myself, the only difficult problem left for them to solve was, in what way I had better commence, one would have thought the world had nothing in its whole construction but futile beginnings and most unsatisfactory methods of doing for oneself. Scheme after scheme was discussed and discarded, new plans were hotbeds for new doubts, and impossibilities seemed to overwhelm every succeeding no successless suggestion. At the critical moment when it appeared perfectly clear to me either that I was fit for nothing or nothing was fit for me. The authoritative, red-tap, of the general postman closed the argument and for a brief space distracted the intense contemplations of my bewildered parents. Good gracious, well, I never, who'd ha thought it, and various other disjointed mutterings escaped my father, forming a sort of running commentary upon the document under his perusal. Having duly devoured the contents, he spread the sheet of paper carefully out, ray wiped his spectacles, and again commenced the former all-engrossing subject. Tom, my boy, you are all right and this will do for you. Here's a letter from your uncle Ticket. I nodded in silence. Yes, sir, continued my father, with increasing emphasis and peculiar dignity. Ticket the great Ticket the greatest pawnbroker in London, said I finishing the sentence. Yes, sir, he is, and what of that? Nothing further, I don't much like the trade. But, but he's your uncle, sir. It's a glorious money-making business. He offers to take you as an apprentice. Nancy my love, pack up this lad's things, and start him off by the mail tomorrow, go to bed, Tom, so the die was cast, the mail was punctual, and I was duly delivered to ticket the great ticket my maternal, and everybody else undefinable, uncle, duly equipped in glazed calico sleeves, and ditto apron, I took my place behind the counter, but as it was discovered that I had a peculiar penchant for giving ten shillings in exchange for gilt sixpences and encouraging all sorts of smashing by receiving counterfeit crowns, half-crowns, and shillings. I received a box on the ear, and a positive command to confine myself to the upstairs, or top of the spout department, for the future. Here my chief duties were to deposit such articles as progressed up that wooden shaft in their respective places, and by the same means transmit the redeemed to the shop below. This was but dull work, and in the long dreary evenings, when partial darkness for I was allowed no candle seemed to invite sleep. I frequently fell into a foggy sort of mystified somnolency the partial prostration of my corporeal powers being amply compensated by the vague wanderings of indistinct imagination. In these dozing moods some of the parcels round me would appear not only imbued with life, but, like the fabled animals of Aesop, blessed with the gift of tongues, others, though speechless, would conjure up a vivid train of breathing tableaus, replete with their sad histories, that tiny relic, half the size of the small card it is pinned upon, swells like the imprisoned genie the fisherman released from years of bondage, and the shadowy vapor takes once more a form, from the small circle of that wedding ring, the tear-fraught widow and the pallid orphan, closely dogged by famine and disease, spring to my sight, that brilliant tear opens the vista of the rich saloon, and shows the humbled pride of the titled hostess, Lying excuses for her absent gems, the flash contents of that bright yellow handkerchief shade forth the felon's bar, the daring burglar eyeing with confidence the council learned in the law's defects, feed by its produce to defend its quantum owner, the effigies of pride, extravagance, honest distress, and reckless plunder, all by turns usurped the scene, in my last waking sleep, just as I had composed myself in delicious indolence, a parcel film with more than ordinary force on one beneath. These were two of my talking friends. I stirred not, but sat silently to listen to their curious conversation, which I now proceed to give verbatim. Parcel fallen upon. What the DL are you? Parcel that fell. That's my business. Is it? I rather think it's mine. Though. Why don't you look where you're going? How can I see through three brown papers and a rusty black silk handkerchief? Ain't there a hole in any of them? Mumber, that's a penny. but when you've been here as long as I have, the moths will help you a bit. Will they? Certainly. I hope not. Hope if you like, but you'll find I'm right. I trust I didn't hurt you much. Not very. Bless you. I'm pretty well used to ill treatment now. You've only rubbed the pile of my collar the wrong way. Just as that awkward black rascal would brush me. Bless me. I think I know your voice. Somehow. I think I know yours. You ain't Colonel Tompkins, Are you? Moomer, nor Countcaster. Munber, then I'm in error. No you're not. I was the colonel once, then I became the count by way of loan, and then I came here as he said by mistake. Why, my dear fellow, I'm delighted to speak to you. How did you wear? So so. When I first saw you, I thought you the handsomest petersham in town. Your velvet collar, cuffs, and side pockets, were superb, and when you were the colonel, upon my life you were the sweetest cut thing about the waist and tails I ever walked with. You flatter me. Upon my honor. Mumber, well. I can return the compliment, for a blue. With chaste buttons and silk lining. You beat anything I ever had the honor of meeting. But I suppose. As you are here. You are not the cornet now. Alas. Mumber, may I ask why? Certainly. His scoundrel of a valet disgraced his master's cloth and me at the same time. The villain went to the low for Arcade took me with him by force. Fancy my agony. Literally accessory to handing ices to milliner's apprentices and staymakers, and when the wretch commenced quadrilling it, he'd me up against a fat soap boiler's wife, in filthy 3 turned indeed common said, scoundrel, rascal, but he was discovered he reeled home drunk, that island as it's known, we make the men, the cornet saw him, and thrashed him soundly with a three-foot crowther. that must have been delightful to your feelings, not very, why not? Revenge you sweet. So it is, but as the cornet forgot to order him to take me off, I got the worst of the drubbing. I was dreadfully cut about. Two buttons fearfully lacerated nothing but the shanks left. How did it end? The valet mentioned something about wages and assault warrants, so I was given to him to make the matter up. Between you and I the cornet was very hard up. Indeed. Certain of it. You remember the French grey trousers we used to walk out with those he strapped so tight over the remarkably chatty and pleasant French polished boots whose broken English we used to admire so much? Of course I do, they were the most charming greys I ever met, they beat the plaids into fits, and the plaids were far from gentlemanly, only they would always talk with a sham scotch accent, and quote the Cotter Saturday night. Certainly that was a drawback, but to a return to our friends, and the Cornet's friends. They must have been bad, for those very greys were seated. Impossible. Fact. I assure you. My tails were pinned over the patch for three weeks. How did they bear it? Shockingly. A general break-up of the Constitution went all to pieces. First, decay appeared in the brace buttons, then the straps got out of order. They did say it was owing to the heels of the French polished boots going down on one side, but the boots would never admit it. How did you get here? I came from the bench for eggs and bacon for the cornet and his valet's breakfast. What brought you? The Count's landlady. For a week's rent. What did you fetch? A guinea. Bless me. You must have worn well. No, hold your tongue I think I shall die with laughing. Ha, ha. When they took me in, I returned the compliment. i have been, what? Cuffed and collared. Ha, 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 ha. Shouted both coats, and, ha, ha, shouted I and I'll teach you to hug, hug, and neglect your business, shouted the governor, and the reality of a stunning box on the ear dispelled the illusion of my daydream at my uncle's, if you espios, blow gentle breeze, the Reverend Henry Snow, M.A. has been inducted by the Bishop of Gloucester, to the vicarage at Sherbourne Coombe Windrush, from Gloucester a windrush came, and lo, on Sherbourne vicarage it drifted snow, the air of A.P.P.L.E.B.I.D.E. Chapter V.I.I.I shows what's after a party, and Watts in a name, Undoubtedly, on the following day 24 pleasant terrace was the most uncomfortable place in the universe, someone has said that wherever pleasure island pain is certain not to be far off, and the truth of the allegory is never better exemplified than on the day after, a most delightful party, we can only compare it to the morning succeeding a victory by which the conqueror has gained a great deal of glory at a very considerable expenditure of material. Let us accompany the mistress of the house as she proceeds from room to room, to ascertain the damage done by the enemy upon the furniture and decorations. A light damask curtain is found to have been saturated with port wine, a ditto chair cushion has been doing duty as a dripping pan to a cluster of wax lights, a china shepherdess, having been brought into violent collision with the tail of a raging lion on the mantelpiece, has reduced the noble beast to the shortcut condition of a scotch collie. A broken candle has perversely fallen the only way in which it could have done any damage, and has thrown the quicksilver on the back of a large looking glass into an alarming state of eruption. The return of, cracked and broken, presents a fearful list of smashage and fracture, the best tea set is rendered in fit for active service, being minus two saucers, a cup handle, and a milk jug, the green and gold dessert plates have been frightfully reduced in numbers, two fiddle handle spoons are completely whores to combat having been placed under the legs of the supper table to keep it steady, seven straw-stemmed wine glasses awfully shattered during the three times three discharge in honor of the toast of the air of apple bites, four tumblers injured past recovery in a fit of and My four young gentlemen who were accidentally left by themselves in the supper room, eighteen silver-plated dessert knives reduced to the character of saws by a similar number of nice fellows who were endeavoring to do the agreeable with the champagne and consequently could distinguish no difference between wire and grape stalks. The destruction in the kitchen had been equally great. The extra waiter had placed his heel on a ham sandwich and consequently sat down rather hurriedly on the floor with a large tray of sundries in his lap. The result of which was, according to the following official return, to decanters start, one salt cellar smithereen, four tumblers cracked in commonly, an extra waiter many bruises and fractured pantaloons the day after a party is certain to be a sloppy day, and as the street door is constantly being opened and shut, a raw, rheumatical wind is ever in active operation, both these miseries were consequent upon the Applebite festivities, and Agamemnon saw a series of guitars enter the house as the route fools made their exit, he was quite right, for the next fortnight neck of mutton broth was the standard bill affair, only varied by tea, gruel, and toast and water, There is no evil without its attendant good, and the temporary imprisonment of the Applebite family induced them to consider the propriety of naming the infant heir, for hitherto he had been called, the Cherub, the Sweet One, the Mother's Duck of the World, and, Daddy's Darling. Several names had been suggested by the several friends and relatives of the family, but nothing decisive had been agreed to. Agamemnon wished his heir to be called Isaac, after his grandfather, the member for Puddingbury, in the hope as he expressed himself, that he might in after years be stimulated to emulate the distinguished talents and virtues of his great ancestor, overruled by Mrs. Wadligott, Mrs. Applebite, and the rest of the ladies, Isaac declared vulgar, except in the case of the member for Puddingbury. Mrs. Wadligott was anxious that the boy should be christened Roger de Dicky, after her mother's great progenitor, who was said to have come over with William the Conqueror, but whether in the capacity of a lackey or a lord-in-waiting was never, and perhaps never will be, determined, opposed by Agamemnon, on the ground that ill natured people would be sure to dispense with the duh, and his heir would be designated as Roger Dickey, in this opinion Mrs. Applebite concurred, the lady-mother was still more perplexing, she proposed that he should be called Albert we give her own reasons because the queen's husband was so named, Agamemnon because of the alliteration and his papa. Davis because an old maiden lady who was independent had said that she thought it a good name for a boy. As her own was Davis. Edmo and D-A-G-U-E because it was a nice sounding name. And the one she intended to address him by in general conversation. C.L.O.U.M.P.S.I.L.E. as her papa. Phipps because she had had a dream in which a number of bags or gold were marked P.H.I.P.P.S. And A.P.P.L.E.B.I.D.E. as a matter of course. Objected to by Mrs. Wadley For nothing in particular and by Agamemnon on the score of economy, the heir being certain to employ a lawyer, would be certain to pay an enormous interest in that way alone. Friends were consulted, but without any satisfactory result, and at length it was agreed that the names should be written upon strips of paper and drawn by the nominees, the necessary arrangements being completed. B3 proceeded to the ballot. Mrs. Wadley drew Isaac. Agamemnon drew Roger DeDickey. Mrs. Applebyte drew Phipps. As a matter of course everybody was dissatisfied, but with a stern virtue, everybody kept it to themselves, and the heir was accordingly christened Isaac Roger to Dicky Phipps Applebite. Old John soon realized Agamemnon's fears of Mrs. Wadley's selection, for whether the patronium of the Norman invader was more in accordance with his own ideas of propriety, or was more readily suggestive to his mind of the infant heir, he was continually speaking of little master Dicky. And upon being remonstrated with upon the subject promised amendment for the future, all, however, was of no use. For John jumbled the Phipps, the Roger, the Dicky, and the De together, but always contriving most perversely to a scandalous report, we are requested to contradict, by authority, the report that Colonel Sithorpe was the guy Fox seen in Parliament Street. It is true that a deputation waited upon him to solicit him to take the chair on the 5th of November. But the gallant colonel modestly declined, much to the disappointment of the young gentleman who presented the requisition, so much so indeed, that, after exhausting their oratorical powers, they slightly hinted at having recourse to rob Emmy the exchequer. Hell, no wonder Smith exchequer bills, should have a taste for gorging, for since the work the pocket fills, what Smith as averse to forging, the fire at the tower, this is a sad business, there is no doubt and the excitement which prevailed may probably excuse the eccentricities that occurred, and to which we beg leave to call the public attention, in the first place, by way of ensuring the safety of the property, precautions were taken to shut out everyone from the building, and as military rule knows of no exception, the orders given were executed to the letter by preventing the ingress of the firemen with their engines until the general order of exclusion was followed by a countermand, this of course took time leaving the fire to devour at its leisure the enormous meal that fate had prepared for it. After the admission of the firemen there was the usual mishap of no water where it could be got at, but an abundant supply where there was no possibility of reaching it. The tanks which the hose could be got into were almost dry, while the Thames was in the most provoking way almost overflowing its banks in the very neighborhood of the fire, and yet, if the pipes were laid onto the water, they were laid off too far from the building to have the least effect upon it. The next eccentricity consisted in the sudden idea that suggested itself to somebody, that all energy should be devoted to saving the jewels, which were not in the smallest danger, and even if they had been, there was nobody knew how to get at them, the key being some miles off in the possession of the Lord Chamberlain, it might as well have been at the bottom of the Thames, and, of course, everybody began tugging at the iron bars, which were at length forced, and the jewels were, at a great cost of time and trouble removed to a place of safety from a position of the most perfect security, however, this showed activity if nothing else, and of course made the subject of paragraphs about, presence of mind, indefatigable exertions, and, superhuman efforts, on the part of certain persons who, for the good they were doing, might just as well have been carrying the piece of artillery in Street James's Park into the enclosure opposite, while the jewels were being hurried from one part of the tower, where they were quite safe to another where they were not more so. It never occurred to anyone to a rescue from danger the arms, which were being quietly consumed, while the crown and regalia were being jolted about with the most injurious activity. The treatment of some of the reporters was another curious point of this melancholy business, and a gentleman from a weekly journal, on applying at headquarters, found his own head suddenly quartered by a blow from a musket. This was rather unceremonious treatment on the part of the privates of the line to a person who was also the penny a line we mean, but with a true gusto for accidents, and a relish for calamities, which nothing could subdue, he still pressed forward, with blood streaming from his fractured skull, for additional particulars, the American reporter whose hand was blown off, and had the good fortune to be upon the spot is not to be compared with the hero who had the exclusive advantage of being able to supply practical information of the ruffianly conduct pursued by the soldiery, it is not stated whether the fire escape was on the spot, but as no one lived in the building that was burnt, it is highly probable that every effort was made to save the lives of the inhabitants, there is no doubt that the latter was strenuously directed towards the clock tower, with the view, probably, of saving the jolly cock who used to adorn the top of it. The reporters mark as a miracle the extraordinary fact, that during the whole time of the fire, the weathercock continued to vary with the wind. The gentlemen of the press, probably, expected that the awful solemnity of the scene would have rendered any man, not entirely lost to every sense of feeling, completely motionless. The apathy of the weathercock that went on whirling about as if nothing had happened, is in the highest degree disgusting, and we can scarcely regret the fate of such an unfeeling animal. Please to remember the 5th of November, November, that month of fires, fogs, philo de southeasts, and Fogs, has been ushered in with becoming ceremony at the Tower and at various other parts of the metropolis, in vain has an act of Parliament been passed for the suppression of bonfires November asserts her rights, and will have her modicum of flare-up, in spite of the law, but with the trickery of an old Bailey barrister she has thrown the onus upon October, nor is this all. Like a traitor a beyond she has already hatched several conspiracies, as though everybody now thought of getting rid of others or themselves. The right Han, Stringheel Rice Baron James Crow, commonly known as the Lord Montiel, has, like his historical synonym, been favored with a communication which being considerably beyond his own comprehension, he has in a laudable spirit submitted it to punch in evidence of wisdom which we really did not expect from our friend Baron James Crow. We subjoin the introductory epistle dear punch. I hasten to forward you the awful letter enclosed we are all abroad here concerning it by the by. How are you all at home to say the least? It certainly does look very ugly. Mrs. P., I hope, has improved in appearance. Something terrible is evidently about to happen. I intend to pay you a visit shortly. I trust we may not have to encounter any more guys you may expect to see me on my Friday. I can only add my prayers for the nation's safety and my compliments to Mrs. Tunch and the young P.S. years ever. Admo P.S. Let me have your advice and your last number immediately I have made a few notes. And paid the postage. The following is the letter referred to by the Baron James Crow, my lord. Being known to some of your friends I would advise you, as you tender your peace and quiet, to devise some excuse to shift off your attendance at your house clearly the house of Lords Montiel for fire and brimstone have united to destroy the enemies of man evidently gunpowder, Lucifer matches, and the Piers Montiel, think not lightly of my advertisement see dispatch, but retire yourself in the country I should think I would Montiel, where you may abide in safety, for though there be no appearance of any tunay, eh? what the deuce does this mean, puny's little Montiel, yet they will receive a terrible blow up by puny eh? he means members of parliament, and he is another guy, Montiel, yet they shall not see who hurts them, though the place shall be purified and the enemy completely destroyed, I am, your lordship's servant, and destroyer to her majesty and the two houses of parliament, T.I.F. Finn, we are surprised at our friend Montiel troubling us with a matter evidently as plain as the nose on our own face, it requires neither a soul nor a punch to solve the enigma, it is merely a letter from Tiffin, the bug destroyer to her majesty and refers to his peculiar plan of persecuting the a We have no doubt that Lords and Commons will be blown up on the reassembling of Parliament, and as an assurance that we do not speak upon conjecture only, we beg to subjoin a portrait of the delinquent, the rival candidates. Be not afraid, gentler.